I'm Kay Firth Butterfield at the World Economic Forum. And I'm Miriam Vogel with Equal AI. And this is In AI We Trust. Hello and welcome back to this week's special episode of In AI We Trust. This week, we are so fortunate to be joined by a special guest host. My co-host this week is Victoria Espinel. Many of you may recall she's joined us in the past. She is president and CEO of the Business Software Alliance, where she leads strategic initiatives that help shape technology, its landscape in more than 30 countries. She is also president of software.org, the foundation at BSA that helps with research and helps policymakers and the broader public understand the impact that software has on our lives. She is also a fellow member of the National AI Advisory Committee, NIAC, as you've heard us call it before. And we are very honored to have her as a senior advisor to Equal AI, in addition to the many other accolades where she is a member of the World Economic Forum's Global Future Council on Agile Governance, the Board of Directors for CHIPS, and so many other important ways she shares her invaluable insights. Victoria, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us today. Miriam, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. So tell us, you are usually very, very busy. Are there a few things you can share that you have coming up or are coming out that we should be on the lookout for? Well, it is an exciting time in artificial intelligence policy. As you know, there, there's a lot going on. There's so much interest and focus right now from policymakers in the United States in Europe, around the world on artificial intelligence. Um, and that's been true for a while, but there's been a real surge in the last few months. And I think it's a great opportunity to see. So what I'm hoping is that we collectively take advantage of this opportunity to move forward in terms of laying out what are responsible roles and guardrails for artificial intelligence, including and perhaps in particular responsible use of artificial intelligence. But it's very exciting to see and feel the energy in the air right now. Agreed. Yeah, I think in so many ways, the world has woken up to AI. And so it's a really important opportunity for organizations like ours to help ensure that AI is created responsibly and does all that we hope it can and will do. So yes, an exciting time indeed. And an exciting conversation today. We are going to be talking with a real rock star. She's part of the badass women in Congress. And you'll see she is True to that title, she is an entrepreneur, a serial entrepreneur, a STEM lead, an expert. She has taught, she has run civil society organizations. She has served in the Air Force and the Air Force Reserves. She is a really important role model for women and takes the time to make sure that other women benefit from her service and the ways that she can add value to the world, bringing other women along. And so I'm really excited that we'll have both a special guest co-host and a special guest on today's episode. So let's dive in. Welcome to this week's special episode of In AI We Trust, where we are honored to be joined by Representative Chrissy Houlihan. Representative Houlihan is an Air Force veteran, engineer, serial entrepreneur, nonprofit leader, and educator, who is also the first woman ever to represent Pennsylvania's sixth district. She earned her engineering degree from Stanford with an ROTC scholarship that launched her service in the U.S. Air Force and Air Force Reserves, and later earned her MS in technology and policy from MIT. Prior to joining Congress, Representative Houlihan helped lead several thriving companies, including AND1 and B Labs. 
She went on to serve and teach for America as a chemistry teacher and then led and scaled Springboard Collective, a nonprofit helping thousands of underserved students all across America build their literacy skills. In Congress, she currently serves on the House Armed Services Committee and the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, as well as a number of caucuses, including the Women in STEM Caucus and the Service Women and Women Veterans Congressional Caucuses. Also of note, since joining Congress, she has been widely lauded with awards. She has been awarded the Abraham Lincoln Leadership Award for America and three Congressional Management Foundation Democracy Awards, and is actually the first member of Congress in history to win two categories in a single congressional term. An all-around rock star. Thank you so much for joining us today, Representative Houlihan. Thank you so much for having me. We are thrilled to have you on our show to highlight your really impressive STEM career where you have used your skills in so many ways from service of your country in the military and Congress as a teacher, public service, civil society. It is really uh, wonderful for our listeners to hear about all the many ways that you can serve when one is determined to do so and add value. I'm curious to learn, where did it start? What sparked your interest in STEM initially? and I want to know, personally, since you also have two daughters like I do, how do you convince them? Are you able to share your enthusiasm for STEM? <laughs> so thanks very much for the conversation. It's an important conversation. What I would say is why, why am I interested? Why have I been interested in STEM and STEAM? It sort of started at a really early age, to be really honest. My parents thought that it would be a really good idea, an important thing for their young daughter, me, to be engaged as much as possible in math and science. From an early age, I remember my father, who was a political science major, saying that he didn't think necessarily that his uh, education was prepared him for what he did, which was a uh, naval aviator. And so he sort of encouraged me in participating in math and science. What was interesting is my mom was actually, and still is actually, the most technical person in our family. She's the one who sat by my side and helped me with chemistry and helped me with calculus and helped me you know, figure out geometry and all of the things. And she also was an early person in computer programming. I remember her walking around with stacks of cards, you know, that, that were programs. And she also has a, a master's degree in remote sensing and geography. So she's really my inspiration in that area. In terms of your own daughters, I don't have any good advice for you on that one. I have three girls. Interestingly, two of them work in tech, but not necessarily as engineers or STEM professionals. One is a theater director. And I worked really, really hard when they were young to make sure that they had all the opportunity to be very good at math and science. And they are very, very good at math and science. And unfortunately or fortunately, they went their own way and they decided to do what, what they liked to do. I, I did try really hard to encourage my every one of them, but my youngest in particular, when she was going to school just a few years ago, to please just take one computer science class while you're there, you know, give it a try. You might actually like it. And lo and behold, in her senior year, she did. And it turns out she liked it. But it takes, you know, everything you can as a, as a parent, and particularly as a mom of girls, to try to help them understand that they have such superpowers, and they're so good at everything. I think that girls, certainly me included, suffer from this idea that if you're not perfect at everything, that you shouldn't do it. And I try to encourage my kids, as well as all the kids who I get exposed to in this job and throughout my other careers, to say, you know what, perfect is not what you're looking for. You know, I got plenty of B's and C's at school, uh, at Stanford, uh, not at, not in my graduate work. But, you know, I still had to persist because uh, there still is just a very small number of people, women uh, who are involved in STEM and STEAM, and you just can't let it, seed it to the boys. 
So I love that. I want to talk a little bit more about encouraging girls' superpowers. So before joining Congress, you had a very successful career. I just want to say B-Labs is so cool. I love that you are involved in that. You pursued a degree in engineering at Stanford, as Miriam said, and that, as you know, is a field that is still heavily male-dominated. 75% of engineering degrees still go to men. But I think you are absolutely right about trying to make sure that women... And and young girls, you know, at all stages of their career and education are thinking about that. So I want to talk about something that you've done in Congress, which I think is really amazing. First of all, you are the first woman to represent Pennsylvania's 6th District in Congress. But you have, since you've been there, thrown your considerable talents behind trying to encourage more opportunities for women in STEM. And you founded a caucus called the Women in STEM Caucus in Congress. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about what you want to do with that caucus, what you think the work of it would be, the, the change that you want to make for women in STEM fields through the caucus, and how sure. people can get more involved to support you. Of course. So it's shocking to me. I started running for office in 2016. I joined Congress in 2019. I joined with a remarkable group of freshmen, a uh, very large, 60 or 70 of us, as I recall, and I am the first woman to represent this district. But what I didn't know until I joined Congress is just how behind Congress is in terms of thinking about issues like women and girls and all people who are not necessarily, frankly, white guys, you know, are in terms of being seen in roles like STEM and STEAM roles. There had never been a caucus addressing women in STEM and STEAM. And that, I think, is a reflection on what the demographic is, so to speak, of the people who served in Congress over the last you know, few hundred years. And by creating this caucus, this bipartisan caucus, two Democratic women, two Republican women, and inviting everybody of both Democrats and Republicans and all genders to join the caucus, we were trying to elevate the conversation about this issue. And what's interesting is I tried to ask for the caucus to be not just women, but you know everybody who's not necessarily thought of in the breath when you say STEM fields. I also tried to say, can we not make it just STEM? Can we make it STEAM? You know, can we make sure that we're talking about the arts integration into STEM? And what was interesting in the conversations with all the people who were, you know, we were working with to launch this program is kind of like let's take some baby steps before we run. It was almost like it was too hard to introduce the concept that there was you know, not just women who were necessarily in need of, of support. And the word STEM was hard enough for people to embrace. And then to add STEAM seemed like it was a bridge too far. So we created this caucus, but we make sure that we're addressing everybody in terms of making sure that everybody feels welcome at the STEM and STEAM table. And we um, create the opportunity for people to meet with one another, whether it's members of Congress, and we have more than 50 or so who are part of the caucus, or whether it's their staffs and the people who orbit Congress to make sure that we are able to get ideas and get insight and input from all the different organizations and groups that, that surround us so that we can pass effective legislation, so that we can have important conversations and oversight about these issues. And we can you know, make sure that we're addressing these kinds of disparities through legislative action and also through the other actions that Congress is allowed to undertake. Well, speaking of important legislation and action that Congress isn't able to take, you pioneered some really important bills, including the STEM Diplomacy Act, which aimed to reduce barriers to hiring STEM employees in the U.S. government, and recently reintroduced the STEM Restart Act, which stands for Restoring Employment Skills Through Targeted Assistance, Reentry, and Training to provide funding for mid-career internships known as returnships for workers seeking to return or transition to the STEM workforce. 
I was struck by your statement. We are actively excluding STEM experts with professional and academic training. It's just remarkable to hear that we could be doing that considering the unique and the critical perspectives they offer in so many of the important subjects where we need that expertise in our country to ensure we remain a leader to make sure that we continue to have impact. So can you tell us how you landed on those specific iterations of the bills to provide your time and energy? And what are some of the challenges you face in gaining support for those bills? Of course. So the first one was introduced when we discovered, my team and I discovered that there, to your point about being actively discriminated against, there were literally whole job descriptions and whole career fields within the State Department that said you had to have a liberal arts degree in order to be considered for the opportunity for the job. And that's just, I'm going to go with asinine. I think that's the word I'm going to go with. It's particularly asinine because of what we're asking our professionals in the State Department, amongst other places like that, to think about in their jobs. They are being asked to be in places where the skills of a STEM or STEAM degree could be useful, whether it's you know, as simple as, you know, kind of how you think and how you navigate a thought process, or whether it's as technical as the fact that they're being asked to think about our role with artificial intelligence, our role with the fact that we just came out of a huge pandemic and biosecurity and biotechnology. The idea that we would restrict people to just having liberal arts degrees, and again, nothing against liberal arts degrees, to being considered for these really important jobs that are all over our planet really struck us as being wrong. And thankfully, that was corrected in the 2022 NDAA. And so that restriction has been lifted, or the Defense Authorization Act is what that stands for. Um, the other piece of legislation that you're talking about, I hope will will find its time uh, in the sun. Remember your schoolhouse rock, and it has to be passed by the House and the Senate, and then signed by the president. This is something that is personal to me, which is a lot of women do get those STEM or STEAM educations. And they do enter the workforce as young you know, professionals. But then a lot of women leave the workforce for lots of different reasons, whether it's having kids or feeling like it wasn't necessarily the exact right fit for them or, or something is, as horrible as the pandemic, where a lot of women have left the workforce and apparently have not found their way to be able to return yet. So this piece of legislation tries to encourage small businesses, mid-sized businesses to be able to afford to have these things that are returnships. It's a similar concept to an apprenticeship, only it's for people coming back into the workforce to make sure that we're encouraging particularly women to be able to uh, find themselves in the workforce again in these mid and small sized businesses. Larger businesses don't struggle as much with this issue. So we're trying to aim this piece of legislation at another population, small business owners and operators that need support to make sure that they're competitive with hiring people. I just want to say my mother went back to school and then re-entered the workforce later in life. I, I was in law school and, and my siblings were in high school when that happened. And so I know how difficult that is for women. And I, I think the idea of returnships and trying to push that forward is so important. Otherwise we're losing, and my mother is a prime example of this, you know, we're losing this amazing amount of talent. So I Same, just, you know, my, the, my, remember I just talked about my mom and, you know, my mom, was a Navy wife. She moved every single year and she had to pick up, you know, whatever it was that she was doing either professionally or personally every single year. And you're just like your mom. When I turned 17, when I went off to college, she went back and got her graduate degree in remote sensing and GIS systems and uh, cartography. She joined, you know, some organizations, including National Geographic. She started her own business in cartography and remote sensing. She's a badass. 
And we need to make sure that we're encouraging more people to be able to do that. So interesting, all three of us are daughters of badasses. And <laughs> as you may know, my mother also returned to law school after she got divorced and needed to find a, a stable profession. And so my night school became Georgetown Law School, which you know was not quite a child care center at the time, but I <laughs> found some interesting law school classes and you know, power to my mom for being able to sit through law school with a child who wanted to do anything but frankly sit there. And as you say, it takes so much resilience and how much the world would have lost if all of our mothers had not been able to find the way to do that. And so thank goodness that you're on the case and, and enabling that path for other moms and people out there. Yeah. So important. So I want to ask you a question about artificial intelligence. You served on the future defense task force. And the role of that task force was to look at the strategic priorities of the U.S. Department of Defense and then try to match U.S. resources to next generation threats. And in talking about AI, one of the first recommendations in this report, which came out in September of 2020, was that the United States should use the Manhattan Project as a model to undertake and win the AI race by leading in the invention and deployment of AI while establishing standards for its public and private use. It's been two years since the report was published. Be interested in how you feel like how much progress has been made in terms of achieving that. You know, are there other steps you think the United States needs to be taking in order to ensure its leadership role in artificial intelligence? What I would say is I don't think we've made enough progress or really any at all that we can point to that sort of looks cohesive and unified in terms of taking a lead uh, with our values and ingenuity uh, on this really important frontier of AI. AI has such an amazing opportunity to be so helpful to all of us, but it also, as we all know, has an opportunity to be harmful. And we as Americans with a certain sensibility and certain sense of moral compass really need to take the lead on this. And we do. You know, I'm, I'm also very, very competitive and believe that the United States should take the lead on this. And, and the words of win the AI race, you know, strike you as being particularly bellicose. But it is important that we lead on these kinds of issues because we need to set the standards. We need to set the ethical boundaries. We need to set the guardrails for this kind of action. So do I think we've done that? We've taken some steps and, you know, some of the commissions that that you guys serve on are, are some of those steps. We've taken some steps and, you know, Congress at least talking about these issues, although not necessarily legislating effectively about them. We've had, you know, hearings, we've had conversations, but we need to also educate ourselves on this as a body, as, as the U.S. Congress. Because going back to what we just talked about with STEM and STEAM backgrounds, forget about women and girls and communities of color. The United States Congress has 20 or so percent of the body are veterans, 20 percent or so are communities of color, but only 24 of us have STEM or STEAM backgrounds. And the idea that we are being asked and, and expected to legislate on things like AI, like cybersecurity, like you know the internet of things, like biosecurity, any number of these technologies is kind of worrisome that we just don't have the capacity and the talent and the bandwidth and the interest to do that. So we do have a lot of work to do. I just read an article that I wasn't even aware of. I serve on the Intel Committee. And apparently, Speaker McCarthy has just said that all the people on the Intel Committee will be taking classes on AI. I didn't know that. Um, I'm happy about that. I hope that that is actually true because it is something really important that we don't do very well in Congress is admit that we don't know enough 
learn what we need to know and execute quickly on the things that we need to be ahead of the curve on. And AI is one of them. Well, we would very much like to support those education efforts. My sense is that there is a great and genuine appetite inside Congress with members of Congress to learn more about artificial intelligence. But I agree with you. I think it's a critically important. And I think the United States has a role that it has to play, mm -hmm. um, not just domestically, but also working with other nations in line with our democratic values to set the guardrails, the rules, whatever term you want to use, but to start putting in place principles that we believe in that will help make sure that AI is being used responsibly and that is going to maximize its positive potential benefit. I, I know in the Future Defense Task Force, there was another recommendation that I think is fascinating about a global treaty on artificial intelligence and in the task force that's sort of analogized to things like the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty. But that I think would be a leadership role that the United States with other countries, it would be fantastic to see that moving forward. It would be. I would love to see something like that. I, um, as we've talked about, you know, with my work on armed services and with Intel and foreign affairs, you know, am somewhat disappointed the fact that we are unraveling some of those exact treaties that we're talking about, having been, you know, role models for the kinds of things that we could do in the space of AI and other kinds of technologies as well. I hope that we have it within our appetite to come together as, as you mentioned, kind of as allies and nations that have shared values to find a way to create, as you said, a roadmap or, you know, um, an agreement to proceed. We need to move expeditiously on that, though, because things are moving very, very quickly. I have a friend who I had dinner with last night who's a middle school English teacher. She was explaining to me that she was using chat GPT to help write quizzes and to help write newsletters. And, you know, she was talking about how she was helping her middle school English students understand how to use the power of something like chat GPT for good instead of for bad. And so it's interesting that an English teacher is working with this with her middle school kids. It's already, you know, filtered its way down to there. We need to make sure that we're moving more quickly than, than we are, I believe. But I think that's really powerful that she's trying to work with her students to figure out how to use it rather than just saying, don't use it, you know, which mm -hmm. is which is not going to be, you know, a sustainable answer. So I, I think that's fantastic. Yeah. So you have also introduced legislation called the Read Act and the Teacher Diversity and Retention Act. Obviously, we were just talking about the importance of having young people be comfortable with digital tools, responsible with digital tools. So I'd love to hear more from you on how to make sure that young people are prepared for the world that we're already living in today and that is only going to increase in terms of the importance of digital tools. Sure. I was, as you mentioned in, in the introduction, I was a high school chemistry teacher through the Teach for America program, core member there. And what I experienced in teaching 11th grade kids in North Philadelphia was that many of the kids in my classes were not able to embrace the chemistry concepts that I was trying to help them learn because they were really struggling with literacy reading. And so, as you mentioned, as a consequence of that experience, I helped to scale an organization that focuses on literacy, traditional literacy, you know, reading and, and, and writing, pre-K through fourth grade. But you also have to focus on kind of all the SEs, you know, literacy and numeracy, financial literacy, civic engagement, and to your point, you know, digital literacy too. 
The good news is, is most of the kids who are around on the planet these days are pretty darn digitally literate, but you do have to have all the other skills that we just talked about to make sure that they can be thoughtful about how they're using that technology and whether it's delivering them, you know, good and real information. It's absolutely possible and indeed is happening that some of those things are wrong and and not correct. It's also absolutely possible and is happening that you can't just have your chat GPT write your term paper for you and just turn it in. So you need to have kind of all of those background skills to be able to roll into the digital literacy as well. Exactly. Representative Houlihan, thank you so much for being with us today. We close each show by asking our guests one final question. If you had a magic wand to achieve one wish to help us achieve responsible AI, what would that wish be? I know that this is a a very important question and I want to give you a really thoughtful answer. I guess my wish would be back to what we were just talking about, which is I really wish that there were a level playing field for education in our nation and in the world. And before I started running for Congress, that's where I was focusing my energy because I think that education is a great equalizer. And as we head into some really, you know, murky waters with what we're facing with in terms of technological advances and in terms of global world order and stability, it would be really helpful if we could know that all of us had the same opportunities to choose their careers and have the same kind of skills that that we have had the benefit of getting. And if that were the case, I think we would make much better choices as a nation, as a world, if we had better equity and equality in education. Well, I wholeheartedly agree with you. And I feel much more optimistic that with you representing the American people in Congress, we are closer to achieving that goal than we would be otherwise. I want to thank you so much for joining us today. I loved hearing the stories about your life, about your mother. It obviously resonated with me and Miriam, both of us deeply. And I want to thank you so much for your public service and for being with us here today on NAI We Trust. Thank you. Appreciate you guys. She is fantastic. I had so much fun talking to her. I loved hearing the story about her mom. I kept thinking like, we got to get these rock star moms together. So she's so fantastic. On the AI side, I think this idea of having sort of a Geneva Convention on AI or a global treaty on artificial intelligence to try to make it as global as possible. And obviously there's going to be challenges, you know, the broader, the group of countries that was involved in that. But that does seem like a real opportunity for leadership from the United States to move an idea like that forward. So I thought that was fascinating. I agree. And I love how she has taken her unique perspective and taken it to help other women, other persons, places where people are too often unseen. So for instance, in public service, to think that you could be disadvantaged because you have a STEM degree is so counterintuitive and counterproductive. And it took somebody with that experience to see it and, and make sure that others were not penalized from service because they they had these important science and STEM skills. Thinking about making sure that there's an opportunity for reentry into the workforce. Not only is that so powerful for people who have taken a pause, but think about all the families that will benefit because she's giving thought to how to allow their parent, their family member to reenter the workforce. They will benefit 
by having that role model, by having that additional financial support, let alone the economy writ large that really requires more hands on deck, more skilled people, especially thoughtful people who have taken time off, who have that perspective and who might need a little extra help getting back in. But once they're in, as we know from our own moms and others we've worked with, are going to provide a really invaluable resource. And so I'm just inspired by the way she took her really deep insights in different areas and different experiences and are using it to benefit the country in her congressional service. I was really struck when she said, you know, what was it? There are 24 members of Congress that have a tech background, that have some sort of STEM or STEAM background. You know, that's not entirely surprising, but to hear the number kind of that starkly. But one of the things that I think is true is I do think that there's a great appetite inside of Congress and policymakers kind of worldwide to learn more about artificial intelligence. So one of the things that I would hope is that she would take her amazing background and as she's been helping women and focus on children and literacy, maybe also be working with her fellow members of Congress to try to increase the knowledge base on technology issues and perhaps in particular on artificial intelligence. I think that she has a lot going on, but I think if she had room for that as well, that would be really helpful. Yes, I couldn't agree more. She is certainly the woman to do it, particularly because of her technical expertise, but also because she takes the time to see who's not being seen and heard. So for so many reasons, she is the right one to help lead the effort to ensure that we are AI ready and that our values are embedded in our AI and the right guardrails are in place in the U.S. Congress. So I'm so delighted you were able to join for this really exciting, energizing, inspiring conversation today, Victoria, and I hope we'll get to see you again. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed this. I thought the discussion was excellent and fascinating. And thank you so much for having me. It was great. Subscribe to or download our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. We always welcome your feedback. And if you like the podcast, please rate us or give us a review. To learn more or get involved, visit us at www.equalai.org and www.weforum.org. If you've enjoyed this podcast and want more unique content, please head over to Radio Davos from the World Economic Forum. And a special thanks to NP Agency, without whom this podcast would not be possible. 